Well, open your Bible with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to continue in our study. And Paul's got some really cool stuff. I left off in our last adventure uh, on verse 18, but I'm going to just kind of double track on that one. And so let's pick it up there in verse 18 and read that again. It says, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess but be ye filled with the Spirit. Remember, I told you last time that in the Greek, it really means to be being filled. It's a, consist, it's a constant thing going on. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. If you're taking notes tonight, you need to underline speaking to yourself. So Paul here gives us an interesting contrast uh, to being filled with excess alcohol. You know, I mean, he's basically saying, hey, listen, guys, instead of trying to fill that void with drunkenness, trying to achieve peace through a synthetic means, trying something, try something that actually works. That's really what Paul's saying. Allow yourself, he says, to be filled, you know, again and again and again with the Holy Spirit. By how? By speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If you're taking notes, make note of that. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. In other words, Paul's telling us to talk to yourself. Give yourself a good talking to. You know, we've heard that term so many times, but really that's what Paul is saying here. When you feel empty, my friends, when you feel down, when you feel challenged, when you feel your faith is waning, when you're being tried, when you're, when you're being tempted, when the things of this world are just becoming overwhelming, don't drown them with or in the bottom of a bottle, but give yourself a good talking to is what Paul says. You know, Paul pointed out two things that are a sure-fired means of reigniting the flame uh, of most disillusioned Christians. And that is the Psalms and the Proverbs. I, uh, I always thought it was interesting that you can actually buy uh, a partial Bible. And what I mean by partial is that it only contains the Psalms and Proverbs. A little, little book and, and uh, uh, I think one of them used to be called the Little little promise pocketbook or something like it was really cool and but you used to buy those and you could get them when i was in the army they used to hand them out but just psalms and proverbs you know why is it because psalms you know, themselves have been a source of inspiration and encouragement uh, in times of trouble to so many millions of people you know when you're in temptation when, when you have you know experienced failure in your life or in your walk with god when you've experienced loss you know yeah, the Psalms have just been a great source of, of, of solace. And, and Proverbs, of course, uh, when one is looking for wisdom, it's a great source of that. My point is that the Word of God, uh, that's what we need uh, to be pouring into our lives. Not, not the excess of alcohol, as Paul says, but really turning to the Word of God in order to find solace in times of trouble. So, Singing, he says, to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They all work. 
They really do. They refocus the soul. They reestablish my thoughts on what is actually true and important. I don't know about you, but I, 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 I myself have been through many trying temp, you know, tr- trials in my life. Um, you know, I, I've been through some, some tough stuff when I think about it, as most of us have. We all go through those things. It's part of life, my friends. It doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. And this is why it's important to, in those times, give yourself a good talking to. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Recently, I had a friend who wrote me, and, and, and you know, he's going through some stuff, and his wife's going through some hard times physically. And he posted that, you know, it, he, it was testing his faith. I didn't write him back. I mean, I told him that we would be praying for him, and I have been. But I didn't want to write him a sermon because, listen to me, those are not times to say, well, I'm questioning my faith. That's when faith starts, my friend. And if you want to be encouraged, listen to the Psalms. Sing them to yourselves. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but this is what Paul tells us to do. So often when people, you know, (laughs) there's been more country songs sang about, you know, put another nickel in the jukebox, you know, and the boy's sitting on the bar stool and he's just drunker than a skunk and put another dime in the, and play that crying song one more time. Why? Because it keeps you right where you're already at. That is in excess of alcohol, trying to find peace and solace and and those type of things through a synthetic means. And so you simply find music that helps to keep you there. They got a word for that in the dictionary. That's called stupid. Don't do, Doc, it hurts when I do this. Don't do that. Paul says, listen, don't give in to excess of wine, but sing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make a melody as in your hearts to the Lord. Man, I can't tell you how many times my life has been turned around. I mean, every revival that I have personally went through, and I hope in your life that you've been going through one too. Because as Christians, you will go through personal revivals, and you should. You should. But every time in my personal life that a a personal revival has happened, it's always been connected with a song or with music. So I, I get what Paul's saying here. I, I mean, it's real to me. You know, I remember years ago, I was, you know, we talk about the issue of backsliding and whether that's possible. Well, I don't, you know, some people want to say backsliding is like turning your back on the Lord. Well, that's not true. What happens is we begin to lose heart. Oh, we're still doing the things that Christians do, you know. And at the time, I was too. I was still preaching. I was still teaching. I was still leading people to cry. I did what I was supposed to do. <laughs> You know, you just get to that point. Now, for me, my, the cause of, my, of that situation was depression. That's a whole other story for another sermon. But that's what it was. And I didn't even know that at the time. But I was sitting in my office, and I was working, and, you know, I was running the laboratory at that time. And I'll never forget it. Uh, one, a good, very close friend of mine, a fellow musician, he, he stopped by the laboratory, and he said, hey, I've got, I bought this CD for you. He had never bought a CD for me ever. He says, but I want you to hear this guy. He said, this is really good. And I said, you know what, Shane, I, I'm not really <laughs> in the mood to listen. to." And I was working on top of him. He goes, oh, come on, because I had a tape or a CD player right there in my office. 
And I said, well, give it here. And it just so happened to be an album by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Maybe you know who he is. So I pop it out and I put it into player and I pushed play. And, and normally it would always play the first song. Well, it didn't do that. The song came up called Let Us Pray. And I listened, the guitar part I loved, and, and, I, and as he started singing, let us pray, I reached up and I turned it off. Why? I didn't want to hear it at that moment. I wasn't ready for it. And I looked over and I said, Shane, you know what? I'll listen to it later, man. I said, he goes, well, it's yours. You keep it. And I said, well, okay. So he left. And I'm sitting there and I began to do my job again and I was doing some chemistry and and I thought, well, let me go. So I reached over and I hit the play button again. And sure enough, the song took right back up. And it began to play. And I remember turning it off again. And, but the Lord, you know, the Holy Spirit began to really tell me. He says, turn that song back on. So I turned it on. And then I just let it play. And it just ministered to me so much, gang. I mean, I mean this sincerely. That I just hit repeat. And I turned it up, and it began to play over. And the more it played, the more I cried. And the more I cried, the better I felt. And it got so bad because I have to admit, I was probably being irritating to other people around me because I had turned it up so loud. It was permeating through the whole laboratory. And, uh, you know, after it played about 500 times, people were starting to get sick of it, but I wasn't. Actually, what I did was I took the disc home, and I put it in my player, and I put headphones on, and I went to bed at night sleeping, listening to it. That was the beginning of a major revival in my life. Paul said, be not drunk with wine, where it is excess, but be being filled with the Spirit continually, singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So often, you know, we... We try to combat the things that come against us with alcohol or, or with drugs or with whatever that thing is. And then sometimes we even turn up secular music of some sort. And I'm not saying, do not misunderstand me, gang. I'm not telling you that listening to a secular song is bad. I'm not saying that. It depends on the song. What I am saying is that music is a, a motivator. It is an inspirator. And that can be good or bad. And if you're already in a bad spot, as Paul's talking about here, the, the last thing you want to do is to begin to listen to songs that will encourage you in that direction. Rather, we want to sing songs that remind me of the grace and the mercy and the restoration power of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ and of all that he's done for me. You know, here, the, since the weather's been good, you know, we, we have here, we got a very nice veranda that we sit on. And in the morning, I go out and I clean the tables and I raise the umbrellas and I open up the doors. And the first thing I put on, you know, is some Michael Card. And I begin to listen to Michael Card, you know, in the morning. Why? Because it lifts my spirit. It reminds me. And, and his songs are so theologically sound and it just focuses me because most of the time after I go out there, you know, I've already been in the Word in the morning. So I need that. We all need that. And especially during times of trouble. Let's go ahead and look at verse 20. He says, giving thanks. This is while you're singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Giving thanks, he says, always. Always. If you're taking note, make note of this, please. 
giving thanks always for, underline that, for all thanks unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a man tell me one time that he didn't mind giving thanks in all things, but that he would not give thanks for all things. And I know he thought that sounded spiritual, but I'm telling you, his life shows it. Still does. At one time, he fancied himself to be a pastor. I'll never forget him telling me that. Because the Bible's so clear that we are to give thanks always, Paul says, for all things. Well, you know, it's easy to thank God. It's easy to raise your hand and say, oh, praise the Lord, you know, when everything's going your way. You know, when the rent's paid, the house payment's done, the car's running fine, you know, and you're, on, you're, you're at the top of your game health-wise. Uh, this the old song, everything's coming up roses, you see. That's, that's the song you're singing. Then what's easy is to say praise the Lord. It's easy to give thanks then. But Paul said that if you're singing in your hearts, making melody in your heart unto the Lord, and, and you're being strengthened in your soul, then you are to give thanks always for all things unto God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we're to do. The Apostle Paul gave us the means by which that it's possible for you to do that. Because I know some of you are thinking, man, I can't, you know, I, I've been going through, a, you know, I've got, I can't cancer, dog. You know, I, I, I've, I've done this, and this, this has afflicted me, or th- I've got this going on in my family. My son's a, a drug addict, or whatever that thing is. You want me to be thankful for that? Well, I'm not telling you anything, brother. I, we're, we're going through what the Scripture's teaching. But let me give you what Paul says. Because there's a key to being able to, to say, I give thanks for all things. And it's found in Romans 8, 28. You probably know the verse. He says, and we know that all things, what's all mean, gang? Come on, it means all. We give thanks for, he says, knowing that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, if you don't understand that much, if you don't get that, well, then you're not going to be, you know, you're going to be like the guy I was talking about. You'll give thanks in everything, but you won't give thanks for everything. You know, if you even realize that God really does love us unconditionally, he loves you supremely, then his purposes in our lives are motivated by his love for us. We know that all things work together uh, for the good because we are the called according to his purpose. His purpose for us is good. His purpose for us is to praise him and to glorify him in all that we do. So if you know that, if you know that God's thoughts towards you are good, his intentions are good because he loves you. I mean, if you really can get your fingers around that, you know, it's not enough to just say, well, yeah, Doug, I believe that. I I believe and then not live it. That's not what we're talking about. Do you really believe it? Have you got your hands around that? That God is sovereign in your life? That there's nothing that God isn't in? Do you believe that? Then why are you fearful tonight? 
if you are? Why are you not thankful in all things if you're not? If you really get that. You know, in Romans 8, um, verses uh, uh, 37, he, Paul went on. He went on there. He says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, he says. Now think about that. That word also is synonymous with the word convinced. And I'm going to drive this home for you because it needs to be. The word convinced, you don't even have to go back to the Greek for this, guys. Just go to your dictionary. It means to have no doubt beyond a shadow of a doubt. Are you convinced? Paul says, I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. I love that word. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you convinced of that? <laughs> really? I hope so. Man, I am. I tell you. And I've had my share. I've been through it. I mean, I've had two times in my life when I was laying on my back and I was convinced I was dying. I was convinced the Lord was calling me home. I, I didn't understand it. You know, everything seemed to be coming up roses. And then all of a sudden, not so much. Next thing I know, I'm going, Lord, if this is it, well, then I guess I'm going home. You know, I finished my work. I'm done. Didn't think I'd be done that quick, but evidently I was. I was convinced of it. But I was good with it. You know, this young man who wrote me, his wife suffering, and I understand it. It's hard to watch somebody you love suffer. You know, tell a show that, talk to any man who's ever watched one of his kids being born. Oh, if that doesn't wrench your heart, I don't know what, you know, you're, you're just past feeling if that doesn't tear your heart out. Because when you watch somebody go through that kind of pain, or you watch somebody that you love who's being inflicted, yeah, that's tough. I know it's tough. But all things work together for the good to them who love the Lord, to those who are the called. Are you part of the called? Well, if, you, if you're part of the called, then it's working together for the good to those of who love the Lord. You see, if God is in control of your life, if he really is, now you've got to qualify that because some of you are sitting out there and you're going, oh yeah, God's in control of my life uh, when I let him. No, I didn't say when you let him. If God is in control of your life, then he's in control of it all the time. There's no such thing as a part-time Christian, my friends. If you think that, you better go back and read Matthew chapter 7. No such thing. You're either, you're either in it all the way or you're not. That's all there is. Jesus said you either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. But if God is genuinely in control of your life, constantly, then nothing that happens to you or to me happens outside of the Father's allowing it to happen. It's common sense. It's good, godly common sense, but it's common sense. Even if, it, even if on the surface, the circumstances that I'm going through seem to be horribly adverse. The problem is with my and your vision. The problem is with our perception. We're short-sighted, you see. That's the problem. At best, we're short-sighted. 
At worst, we have no sight at all. We can't see anything. You know, but God, His sovereignty sees into the future. He knows all things. And because we are the called according to His purpose, He's working out in us that which will work for the good of those who love the Lord. Look at verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Hmm. When we think of the church body, we really must think of it as a family. Not some half-hearted family. I'm talking about a not dysfunctional family, <laughs> a, real, a real family, a loving family that's operating properly, the way God intended it to be. We really need to think of it that way. It's, it's within that framework, you see, that we are to submit ourselves to one another in the fear of God. The selfish life says, me, me, me. I, I, I. What's in it for me? <laughs> that's, that's a selfish person. I remember, you know, uh, somebody, a uh, long time ago, I heard him talk about his, his, the own church that he was pastoring, but let me apply it to Calvary Chapel, Newark. That's like somebody coming and saying, what does Calvary Chapel, Newark have to offer me? Today, the time in which we're living, which is so close to the return of Jesus Christ, I am seriously convinced. This is the Typical reaction of those who attend church today, my friends. Not a cynical position on my part, simply an observation. People are more concerned with what program that the church has to offer them. I remember being, when I was at Calvary Chapel in Zanesville, and I had been for many years, we had a great uh, church body there. We had a great ministry. And people did what they had. I remember this one large couple uh, had many kids. I think they had like 10 or 12 children. And they had been attending for a very short period of time. And after church one Sunday, I was standing down by the door, of course, greeting and saying goodbye to people as they were leaving. And this one young man who was part of their, their brood, I don't know, he couldn't have been more than 12. Here's what he said. He said, my mom doesn't like this church. And I started laughing. And I said, really? She wouldn't be the first. <laughs> I said, but what's her reason? He says, well, you guys don't have any programs for, for us kids. And I said, well, then tell your mother to show us how to do it. But they left. Why? Because their mindset was, what does the church have to offer me? Even Jack Kennedy knew better than that. You know, he said, ask not what your what you." your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your Even he got that in a secular sense, that that is the selfless mindset. And it certainly should be to the man of God or to the child of God. We shouldn't come to a church going, what, what is the program? We should come to that place where we're serving and say, how can I help to, to, for you? How do I help you serve the Lord better? How can we help each other do that which is needful? I've seen people with children who will not serve in the nursery. Always thought that was ridiculous. I, I heard an argument one time. The lady told me, she goes, well, I'm not going to serve in the nursery. She goes, I bring my kids here so, so I can study the Word of God. And I go, well, you got part of that right. We actually come to church so we can collectively worship the Lord together and to minister to each other. And we do that collectively. 
But helping out, jumping in and submitting yourselves one to the other is what Paul has called us to do. The selfless act is to say, you know, what can I do to help? How can I minister? How can I help the ministry to further? Not what does the church have to offer me? I remember Raul Reese saying one time, of course, he had a church of thousands, and somebody came to him one time and said, so what does Calvary Chapel have to offer me, Raul? And he said, you see them doors? <laughs> yeah, easy to say when you got 10,000 people who attend there. But most people, that's their mindset. And that's, unf- well, not most people, but, if, but several people. When they, you know, that, that's, that can be their mindset. But it's not what we're called to. That's a me, 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 I, I, I. You know, how can you serve me? You know, uh, what program? I'm not staying here. There's no program. Well, then maybe you ought to stand up, lift up your arm and go, hey, how can I help? You know, we've got a bunch of kids. You know, maybe we ought to start a children's ministry here. Instead of going, let me go to some place where people will babysit my kids while I, while I had the Bible read to me. You know, that's, that's not ministry, my friends. That's, that's being a, that's like a baby bird sitting in a nest. You ever see baby birds? Now, I got to be honest with you. Now, some of you will disagree with me with this, but you're just going to have to listen to me. I think baby birds are ugly. They just creep me out. Why? Because you ever notice how big their heads are? Their heads are huge. And when they open their mouth, it's like you can see all the way to their tailbone. I'm just telling you. They're just, and their mother has to jam food down their throat. That's the way some people are in church. Now, it's okay when you're a baby in Christ. You come, and we will sift through the Scriptures, and we will feed you. But there comes a time when you ought to be a self-feeder, and then there comes a, bit, a time when you, too, ought to become a teacher of the Word of God. And too much anymore, we have people who are looking to be fed. They're like little baby birds who with their mouths hanging open and they never come to maturity. They never come to that place where they say, hey, let's submit ourselves one to another in the love of Christ and, and, and in the love of Christian, just in Christian love. And let's, let's see how we can serve together. That's what Paul's called us to. That selfless life, you know, in the church. So, Paul's going to go on now. Let's look at verse 22. So we're going to be looking at the rest of this chapter. And really what he dedicates the fi- for the finality of this chapter to is the issue of marriage. And it's the quintessential chapter on marriage. It just is. So if you're a married person and, and, or you're thinking about getting married, you might want to listen up and make sure your pencil is sharpened on this one. Okay? So let's start off. Verse 22, he says, Wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands. If you're taking notes, underline own husband. As unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Notice he uses the word is there three times in that sentence. He doesn't say because the wife, let's look at the husband is the head of the wife because the wife lets him be. Oh, it doesn't say that. It says the husband is the head of the wife. Why? Because God says he is. He says even as Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head. It's not because we let him be the head. He is the head. And he is the savior of the body. I worked in a prison system years ago. Boy, I was just a puppy, but I was a prison guard at uh, Iowa Maximum Security. I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget what they told us there. They said uh, when they were taking us through training, 
they said that a prison is like a city. And you are the cops. The difference being is the inmates here allow you to be the cops. I never forgot that. They allow you. You know, they let us do this. Uh, basically, what they were saying was they allow you to do it without killing you because they could if they wanted to. And it was true. You know, you're working in a prison. You're down there. You don't have a gun. You don't have cuffs. You don't have a stick. You don't have no protection. You have your wits. That's all you have. But they allowed you to do it. But that's not the way it is in the church. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Right off the bat, Paul pointed out to wives, not to women in general, once again, this is to wives. You remember, guys, listen to me. The Bible says he that finds a wife finds a good thing. He didn't say he who finds a woman. Okay? Now, granted, a wife is a woman, no doubt. But not every woman is a wife. Because some women are just like some men. They're called to singularity. They're called to be on their own throughout their life. And Paul says if you can do that, hey, great. Then dedicate your life to nothing but the things of the Lord. Some people are called to that. Most of us are not. Most of us need to fulfill that role of being a part of something that we call marriage. And so that's really what Paul's talking about. So he's talking to wives here, okay? And they are to submit themselves to their own husbands. It is significant that Paul says own husband here uh, because so often in marriages, uh, it can be the source and the beginning of trouble uh, when wife, uh, the wife of one man begins to submit to the authority of another. Happens all the time. Once loyalty is divided, though, I'm telling you, trouble will ensue, and divorce probably will be inevitable. But the husband, he said, is the head of the wife, which simply means uh, uh, he's the position of authority. Some women don't like that. They don't want to hear that. And some women call that misogynist. You know, I mean, that word gets thrown around so much anymore. Certainly in the age in which we live, it's even spoken against, you know. But the picture here is as Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. So what Paul's saying here is it's a picture, if you will, marriage is. It's a model of Jesus' relationship uh, to the church or to his bride. It's a model. It, it, that's what it is. That's what marriage is. It's, of course, and it's, it's a model that's being given to the, to the world. This is the picture that God wants the world to see about his relationship through Jesus Christ to the church. Of course, this is what Paul says in verse 24. He says, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be unto their own husbands in everything. Notice he says unto their own husbands in everything. So, in, I guess the question needs to be asked. You know, Paul says, okay, let them be subject their own, to the wives and to their own husbands uh, and everything. You know, he doesn't say just in the things that the wife agrees with. Uh, notice that, ladies. He doesn't say, okay, it's just the things that you agree with. One of the hallmarks of the downfall, I think, uh, not only in the world, 
but it's also found its way into the church uh, in many instances anyway, is the demasculization of men and of husbands in particular. If a woman does not understand that her marriage is actually a model, it's a picture, a representation, a witness, if you will, to the world, to show the world the loving, selfless relationship of Christ and the church, then uh, she's never going to subject herself. You know, she's not going to put herself in subjection to her, her own husband and everything. No way. Maybe when she agrees with what's going on, but certainly not any other time. If she doesn't get that, it, that she's portraying a witness. When she is not, you know, when she's not doing that, when she's not submitting herself, she's not fulfilling the call that God has given to her. In a very real sense, she is demasculizing her husband and will, I'm telling you, it will and does hinder him in his calling to be the head of the wife and the head of the family for that matter. So he will become, and we see this all the time, what I call a mousy man. And there's nothing worse than a mousy man and a mousy husband. I can't even understand why a woman would want a mousy husband, to be honest with you, but many women do. Because they, they, the, the whole picture of the family is just turned upside down. And their view of the church is usually upside down. You know. So when that happens, the man really suffers when a woman is not in subjection to him. He's not allowed to do what he is supposed to do. I mean, there's an old joke even in the world. The woman says, my husband wears the pants in our family because I lay. And I tell him what color. You know, I mean, and there's guys that go, yeah, that's about the way it is. And some people really think that that's the way it should be, but it's not, you know. When that's the case, they're not really representing the relationship of Christ to the church. So the world gets a very skewed view when they see that situation. But marriage is a model. It, it means something a lot more than what the world says that it is. God has placed marriage not simply as a means of procreation, uh, but to illustrate the interaction with, uh, between God in Christ Jesus and the church, relating to his bride. The church, uh, you know, the ultimate loving way, that the, the church and then the church responding, you know, or reciprocating really. So God's the initiator, and then the church responds to that. The same way a husband should be loving to his wife, and then his wife responds to that. It's reciprocated. This is why Paul says in verse 25 here, he says, Husbands, love your wives. So he said women should submit themselves to their own husbands. Here he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So God has commanded men, Christian men, that is, to love their own wives supremely. Now, I, I really separate. I've had many, 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 many people who are not Christians who have called me over the years, and I've been in the ministry for over 40 years now, wanting me to do a wedding. I made that mistake one time, and I regretted it. And I've never done it since. I've, I will not marry, I will not perform a marriage for anybody who I do not believe is serving the Lord who has no relationship with Christ. Because my question is, is why do you want to get married? Why not do what the world says? If you're not going to serve the Lord, why would you even get married? That makes no sense to me. Because marriage is a model. 
It's a model of Christ in a church, which Paul's going to tell us here in a minute. And it's meant to do something more than just procreate. It's meant to show the world a loving relationship between God and, and, his, and, and the church through Jesus Christ. You know, God has commanded Christian men, though, to love their wives supremely. You know, as Christ loved the church, he gave himself for it. That is, he died for it. The reason God has given the command to men is because God understands women. Ladies, listen to me. God understands you. He knows what you need. He knows what men need. God understands the needs of women. One of the greatest needs of women is the, the need to feel security in that she is supremely loved by her husbands. Husbands, if you don't get this, you're just a dummy, and you better pray about it because your wife needs to know that. She needs to know that she is supremely loved in your eyes. She needs the security of knowing that no one else could attract, or anything else, not just anyone, but anything. I've heard some women say that they were widows to golf, you know, or they were widows to whatever that thing is. Not a person. You know, there's a song out there um, called Brandy. It's old. It was uh, done by a band called Looking Glass, a brother and sister. I actually like the song. It's a nice old song. But in the song, you know, he says that his, you know, this girl that he says would make a good wife. What a good wife you would be. But my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. So she wound up being a widow <laughs> to the ocean, to the sea. Well, that's not a Christian man. That's nuts. That's crazy. No, no, no. That's no. Women need to know, guys that they are supremely loved, that they are the apple of your eye, and they're the only apple of your eye. Not her and golf, not her and football, not her and whatever, but her, you know. That's what God has called us to. When marriage fails, and it does so often, let's face it, I mean, it's a, I've heard so many estimates here recently, but it's been, as, it's been over 50%, and then it's been as low as 40%, but very, very high. You go back to the turn of the century in this country, and marriage was less than 5%. Well, it's way above that now, and even in the church, and many of us have been through it. And for a plethora of reasons, you cannot just brush with a broad stroke, and Christians, quit doing that. I hate it. You know, some of you out there, some of you pastors, you talk like, like, like divorce is some sort of an unpardonable sin. No, it's not. It's certainly not what God intended. But it's not the scarlet letter that they have made it out to be. If it is, then half of the church would have to leave. I remember one morning, I, I, I've done this at several churches that I was teaching at. And I simply asked a question when I was teaching through Ephesians. I said, how many of you have actually been through divorce or, or affected by divorce? And every church I've ever done it in, almost every hand goes up. So if we were to eliminate the divorced people out of the church, well, there wouldn't be many people sitting there. That's the era, that's the time in which you're living. But it's not what God intended. God intended marriage, and I think the reason most of it is because, or for the you know, divorce is because people forget this, especially in the body of Christ. They forget that marriage is a model. It's a witness, if you will, to the world of how God relates to the church and Jesus Christ, it's him and his bride. 
But when marriages fail, it's because there is a breakdown of this basic admonition that Paul's giving us here. You know, it's either a breakdown of the wife's failure to submit to her husband, and thereby, you know, the walls begin to be built, or it's a breakdown of the husband not loving the wife supremely, and the walls begin to be built, or it's a breakdown of both. And so the walls begin to be built, and then the time is just ticking. You know, listen, that's not, you know, and those of us who have been married for, uh, you know, a long time, and the relationship should grow. Listen, once again, it's a picture of Christ in the church. I can't drive this home enough. And just like fine wine that gets better with age, our relationship with our wives and with our husbands should do the same thing. It should get better with age. It should mellow. It should become more passionate. Oh, I realize that the passion might be less frequent. Our married people, we know what we're talking about. But it should, it should turn into more quality than quantity. You know, there are bottles of wine that are several hundred years old, and, and they, they have the sweetest wine which is why they're extremely expensive. And in a marriage that has been grounded in the things of God and has been a good example of the witness of God, you know, Jesus and his church and his bride, well, it's the same way. It gets sweeter with time. It gets better with age. Now, I've seen <laughs> some couples who have been married for years, and listen to me, longevity is not always a sign of, of godliness. No. I don't care how long you, don't tell me how long you've been married, and yet you've got a history of fornication, you've got a history of infidelity. That's not a witness. You're lying to yourself. There's no quality in that. Now, those things can be forgiven. Don't misunderstand me. But don't think that longevity is somehow the all in all, you know, because I've seen some people who can take a lot of suffering. (laughs) They can tolerate a whole lot for years, and some people go to their grave that way. That's not a witness. But husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. You know, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It's that back and forth. It's that beautiful communion that illustrates Jesus and his church, Jesus and the bride. That's really what marriage is about, is showing the world what that relationship looks like as far as Christ and the church. You know, so many people are affected by divorce. And one of these days, we're actually going to do a teaching on that because so many people are affected by it. And there's been so much bad teaching on it. Uh, and mainly, you know, they, they, they want to turn it into an unpardonable sin. And it's not. There is hope. And there, there is restoration. But we need to just stick with what God has taught us about these things and, and keep it as a, a picture. And if we really get that, uh, you know, the chances of mishap will be much less. There's no guarantee because sometimes people just go through things and some, you can't brush with a broad stroke. But if we keep our eyes on the things of Christ and we really walk according to what is the admonition is, you know, wives, submit yourself to your husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Then the chances are pretty good that things are going to work out. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify, that is the bride, sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. So ought men to love their wives even as their own bodies. Now, guys, take note of this. Take note of this. He that loveth his wife loves himself. I've seen men who have just been absolutely ridiculous to their wives. They're verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive. Well, I got, I got news for you. You're an idiot. You know, you're treating yourself, my friend, like a fool. Why would you do that? You know, Paul goes on. He says, for no man ever hated you know, his own flesh. I've heard people say, well, you know, he hates himself. That's not true. Paul says here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that no man ever hated his own flesh. In fact, Satan, one of the few things he ever said that was true in the book of Job is he said, skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his own skin. That's most men. That's a true statement. The fact is, he says, there's no man who's ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it. And I have to tell you, during this coronavirus thing, most of us have been nourishing it too much. That's why we're, we need to start the corona diet. That's a whole other sermon. But right at the moment, you know, he cherishes it and nourishes it even as the Lord does the church. You can always tell a wife who is spoiled rotten with love. And that's a good thing. I like to compare it to the Jesus. You know, we always, I, I like the word lavish. And I got that from an old assistant pastor of mine. And I, he always used that word. And I love it. God lavishes his love on us. Jesus lavishes his love on his bride. And men, we ought to lavish that love upon our own wives because she will genuinely blossom and be absolutely beautiful when we do that. It's the same way with all of us as the church of Jesus Christ. Like I said, you know, when we're blooming where we are planted and in our blossoming in our love of Jesus, then we're just a joy to be around. And women who are genuinely loved, women who genuinely have a great relationship are, are feeling the security of a relationship that they're really on the pedestal of their husband's heart. They're just a joy to be around. They're not irritable. They don't, uh, you know, they're not, they're not in the workplace frowning all the time. Why? Because they're, they, most of them can't wait to get home. And it should be. And their husband should be the same way. And I really tell you, if, 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 if the relationship is what it should be, that's the way it will be. So a woman who is smothered in love, just as Jesus smothers and lavishes his love on, on the church, you know, they're just a joy to be around. But he cleanses it, you know. He doesn't want that, to, that bride to have a spot or a blemish or a wrinkle or any such thing, he says. But he cleanses her by the washing of water by the word. I love that. You know, the problem with a lot of husbands, even if they love their wives, they're not cleansing them. They're not bathing them in the word, guys. You know? I, I am so blessed. I love the fact that I get up every morning, and I'm not bragging. I'm not patting myself on the back. Listen, but I have been blessed. My wife, you know, we get to set up. I get up in the morning, and we get to sit around, and I, I'm going through the scriptures. I'm doing my study, and my wife also happens to be my best friend, but she's also my church secretary. And the whole time, you know, we're typing, and we're doing this, and we're going through the scriptures, and we have these great conversations and these, you know, pretty deep theological discussions. And I appreciate that so much. 
because it's not only affecting me, but it, it is affecting her. And, it, you know, and that's the way it should be. So, you know, he washes her, cleanses her by the washing of water by the word. But that works for men, too. It works, it has the same effect. So it's the word of God, my friends, is, is my point. Continually cleansing us, you know, uh, with the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and reminding us that it's his blood that continually cleanses us from sin. This is the way that we, as husbands, you know, Paul said, when, when you love your wife supremely, uh, you are actually loving your own self. Because as the husband, you're the one who's going to benefit from the love that's going to be reciprocated. Now, going back to the verse I, I mentioned quite a while back, he that finds a wife finds a good thing. You know, it's easy to read this and to misunderstand that probably one of the first things that you need to learn to do, husbands, before you're a husband, is to wait on the Lord. Choose wisely. I've said this, and I mean it. I still believe it's true. And I think that most men would agree with me that most men and women, especially men, will spend more time picking a car that they're going to buy than choosing the woman that they're going to spend the rest of their life with and making sure that she is the mature spiritual woman that she claims to be. And women... The same would go for men. You need to pick wisely. So if you choose wisely and then you follow the admonition that Paul's giving us here in Ephesians 5, man, the divorce rate would be cracked so far down. But most of us don't do that. Most of us do not choose you know, wisely. We choose sporadically and impulsively and based upon usually our flesh. Hasn't been too long ago. I, I knew a man who had an aspiration to be a pastor. Uh, I like him, good guy. I've known him for years. And yet, uh, when the opportunity arose, I mean, you know, you, you, you meet somebody, and next thing you know, you're, you're not choosing, you're not waiting on the Lord. You're engaging in things that the Lord says you shouldn't be engaging in. That's not the way to do it, gang. Because all you're going to wind up doing is making a really bad mistake. Because you're not thinking right when you're in sin. You're, you're just not. Sin will ruin your thinking. Uh, it skews your thinking, excuse your view, you know. It's just not to be, you, you do realize, you know, there's an old adage in the world that, you know, and I hate to even use it, but it's, people say it all the time. You know, you, you want to try something, you see, before you buy something. And that's ungodly. And it's sinful to even, to think that way. But, but that's the way a lot of people think. And it's not the way God has ever intended it. The physical side of a relationship, as you well know, comes very natural. You don't really need anybody to teach it to you. In fact, if you're a virgin when you get married, both of you, what a beautiful way to explore the mysteries of life and, if, and finding out those things together. What a beautiful thing to be able to say that that's the best lover you've ever been with because it's the only lover you've ever been with. 
That's the way God intended it, and that's really the way it should be. But so often we don't. So it's just a side note, you know, pick wisely. It makes the rest of it so much easier. Look at verse 30. He says, for we are members of his body. That's if you're born again. And of his flesh and of his bones. I love that because, man, it's a, we're, we're members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones, you know. You remember what Adam said of his wife. You are now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Remember, you know, God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep and then he removed a rib and he created the woman. Isn't it interesting here? He relates Jesus, who is the second Adam, as we're told in the Bible, that we have because we're born again because he has chosen us as his bride. He says that we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bone. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. Make note of that. <laughs> Listen, if you're taking notes, make note of that. It's a great mystery, he said. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So everything Paul has just said, he says, I realize that what I'm saying is kind of mysterious. But I'm telling you that this is the way it is with Christ and his church. This is the picture. This is the model of Jesus in the church. Nevertheless, he says, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Listen to me, guys, as we close. It's hard for some women to reverence somebody who's not very reverent. And what I mean for that is if you are not the man of God, that you ought to be, that God has called you to be. Because he says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Well, he's a pretty good example. So, but if you're not walking in the way that Christ has walked, if you're not upholding the word of God, if, it, if you're not convinced of that, it's going to be pretty tough for a woman to reverence you when you have no reverence for the things of God. So, nevertheless, he says, let every one of you, in particular, love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Men, be the men of God that God has called you to be. Be a man of the word. Be a man of study. If you're going to study the word, study prophecy. But be in there. Be active in those things. And be doers of the word as he tells us in the book of James. And I'll guarantee you that if you will do those things and you will love your wife, even as Christ has loved the church, and you will put her first in all things, you're going to find that the reciprocation of those things will be to your blessing. And that marriage that will happen will be of your dreams. And I mean that. That woman that you're married to, she will become the woman not only in, but of your dreams guaranteed if you'll just do what God has called you to do. Father, we love you and we thank you for your admonition, Lord Father, to show us how Jesus lavishes his love upon the church and how we, Lord Father, collectively as the bride of Christ are recipients of, of that, Lord Father, and we just want to reciprocate 
what we have received from you. We love you so much because you first loved us, Lord. Bless your people and bless those, Lord Father, tonight who have listened in. I just want to talk to you for one moment, though, as we're praying, and all the rest of the believers are praying. Listen to me, my friend. If Whether you're a man or a woman, or whether you're married or divorced, whatever the case may be, if you have never made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, but you know the Lord is calling you, you are feeling the pricking in your heart, you stopped and you began to listen uh, whether you're listening uh, by social media or you're listening on radio, you've, you've been listening to a long time now, and what I've said made sense. But you're finding it difficult to execute those things. Listen, it's because you don't know Jesus. You need to simply repent, my friend. That means to change your mind about Jesus Christ and who he is and what you've believed about him. Realize that you're lost without him. You're a wretch without him. You, you are lost in your sin. Listen, just repent. Ask God to forgive you. He's already done it. You just need to accept it. And then submit to him and to his word as Lord. And you shall be saved. The Bible tells us that if we will simply believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God has raised him from the dead and confess that with our mouth that we shall be saved. So my friend, do that now. Confess your sin before God and ask him to forgive you, and he will. I pray that you do that. God bless you. Until next time, uh, stay in the Word, my friends. It gets better and better uh, as we get ready to finish up the chapter next time. So uh, God bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. And we'll see you next time right here on Something Beautiful. God bless you.